This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to Sam. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm Rose Samson Folk, and today, a special episode with a special friend, eulogizing the Raptors season, one of the most interesting, compelling seasons in basketball history, I think, as far as the media narrative, how things played out, and how close they got to glory, and the type of glory that they captured within themselves, and how they went about things. But to eulogize their season with me, my guy, my buddy, from Raptors Republic, and the other half of Minute Basketball, or my new basketball, Lewis Atzman. How you doing today, Lewis? I'm doing great, man. A, a day is always at its best when I'm talking with you. That's... That's so romantic. Thank you very much. I <laughs> That's so nice to hear. I I have an anecdote right here and I'd like to know if you agree. So I'm going to I'm going to bring it out. <clears throat> a lot of good music is depressing. A great deal of good writing is depressing. But good basketball always makes me happy. Is there wisdom in that? That's a good one. So so dear listener he said he would jump me with some quote. I didn't know exactly which, but now I find out I like that. So I think basketball and music and writing are different in that good art will often make you introspective. And introspection, I think, is by definition um, in many ways, uh, if not depressing, just like saddening and sort of a slow sort of feeling in your brain, which we confuse for depressing. Whereas basketball is not, I mean, people describe it as art, but often it takes you out of your body. It connects you with other people, you know, other fans. It's exciting in a way, uh, you know, you watch someone dunk. You didn't know it was about to happen. There's there's not a ton of musical or, or literary similarities to that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there is certainly wisdom in that. Yeah, I can't imagine that there's very many pieces of art that when you see them, you kind of want to jump off the chair and start flexing and high-fiving your friends like, hell yeah, a starry night. Dude, this <laughs> thing's fucking sick, bro. <laughs> but like Norman Powell on the break getting a dunk or whatever type of, you know, what would it be, animosity that uh, sports fandom can create. I don't think you get the same thing out of art. So yeah, maybe David getting Blatt. you... <laughs> oh Jesus! Yeah, <laughs> getting you in the small spots of uh, of your being, I think, is definitely what art does. And basketball, maybe not. 
but on occasion, maybe if it's a Kyle Lowry presser. But you, the man famous for coining, I'm pretty sure I've never heard it until you wrote it in. Don't cry because it's over. Smile because it's happened. <laughs> yeah, uh, I wrote that. No, no one's ever used that before me. That's true. <laughs> exactly. The new Mark Twain, Louis Atman. Can you let's let's walk that out. Don't cry because it's over. Smile because it's happened. What are the greatest motivators that make you kind of walk that out? That make you understand that season as that? So so first of all, I wanted to use that line because it's corny as hell. And I want I this season almost felt like summer camp in a lot of ways. Just I mean, the goodbye from a distance, the the insane pause, the weirdness, the just the the team ship of this Raptors without having Kawhi Leonard. It just felt kind of like a summer camp to me. And I, I don't know if I can explain it any better. But so just like a corny summer. If I could have, I would have used um, you know, that Green Day song, like this is the turning point, the fork stuck in the road, that that whole thing. Um, but the season to me, to answer your question, that's all rambling. The season was in many ways just a happy season. Like we got to see Kyle as the the only star for the first time in his career, really, without Demar, without Kawhi, and he was just so awesome at it. We got to see so many of the young guys explode and improve, and and Pascal coming out and becoming a star, um, you know, for ninety percent of the season was just so fantastic. We got to see Fred add to his game. We got to see Norm add consistency. Serge had his best offensive season of his his long career. I mean, it was just. Everywhere you turned, there was just another positive. And coupled with the low expectations, I think even on the part of Raptors fans coming in this year, it just made for more happy moments than I, I think I can ever remember over a season. So do you think it was important that the expectations were low so that we could have a season where everybody was batting above their average, punching above their head seemingly? Was, it, was that part of it? Or do you think if people had said coming in recognizing hey Kyle Lowry is still that dude Pascal Siakam has lots of room to grow OG Ananobi remains good the rest of the supporting cast is quite good as well do you think that getting above those expectations and beating the narrative that was out there do you think that's a big part of the enjoyment or do you think it's strictly on the court stuff no it's de that's definitely part of it I mean the on the court stuff I think if you take any team that has a history of failure, you give them a championship, and then you take away the, the finals MVP, everyone will improve just because there's so many more shots to take, right? And they finally have this burden off their back. So if you take, um, you know, if you take Dirk's Mavericks and take Dirk off the next year, like, yeah, a lot of those young guys, I mean, there were no young guys. That's a horrible example. But I think that's just a virtue of what happened with the Raptors. At the same time, I mean, with low expectations, it's really easy to, to pass them, right? And so so for, for me and for most other writers, I didn't expect a championship coming into the season. I expected a second round out, maybe an Eastern Conference Finals out. And, uh, and the fact that they were so good for much of the season really allowed me to enjoy that. So both, narrative and on court. But but what about you? I mean, di what did you expect coming into the season? I know, I remember reading what you wrote, but let's reiterate. I initially, I did that big podcast at the start with Michael Pina, where both he and I predicted how things would shake out. I believe I had the Raptors third. They obviously, Boston underperformed in the regular season. 
Philly underperformed in the regular season, and the Raptors even surpassed what I thought they'd be able to do. I thought that they'd have more rest for guys, and yeah. instead it was pedal to the metal all the time just because of, you know, by proxy of all the injuries. Yeah, the injuries guys were the rest. Racking, yeah, a lot of guys were racking up a bunch of stuff, and I was honestly a little bit surprised at how Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam were able to carry in the moments where Kyle wasn't there. And so they they beat my expectations by a little bit. But I was always, you know, you're always acclimating your expectations to the current climate. And I think I, I was, I had a pretty good beat on the team all year. I was a little bit surprised at how much they struggled against Boston, but not overwhelmingly. You and I were both on the side of, I don't know if things could get kind of hairy in the half-court offense in the playoffs. That did bear out. That was typically, I think, where they lost the series for the most part. I mean, in Game 7, it was the turnovers, but for the most part, that type of thing. And I think it's so much fun to watch a lot of people say, oh, these guys aren't good. And it's like this open secret that you have where you're kind of giggling at it, and you're like, oh, my God, they don't know. And to be in on it yeah. with thousands of other people is yeah. is a super fun and enjoyable thing. I think that's one of the best parts of it. I think that's a really good point. The, the sort of in-joke, right? P like, Raptors fans love nothing more than national media shitting on the Raptors. It's just, it's it's Toronto fans' favorite thing in the whole world. Like, it, it really, it, it fuels a lot of the, the Twitter discourse, and I think as... It has had a big impact on how Raptors fans engage online as well. That hardened, slanderous, outward, kind of provocative attitude yeah. built on the back of so much disrespect or perceived slights, whatever it might have been. You know, typically they don't mean to. There's just kind of an implicit bias, I think, when covering the Raptors. A lot of people don't say, hey, I haven't watched the Raptors this year when that typically is the truth. A lot of people yeah. don't watch the Raptors. And instead of being honest about it, they might, you know, bring up some really tired old narrative. Yeah, like make they a terrible some take. people some people could be talking about a 2015 Kyle Lowry performance. And that so, that will be informing their season or what they think of the season. So what you're saying is really that we as Toronto fans, writers, Twitter personalities, we're product of our of our circumstances. Yeah. And our environment naturally. Yeah. Which and made so, it very enjoyable, right? To to bring it first circle, which is part of what made this year so fun. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, you know, there's, as I said at the end of the Game 3 Reaction Podcast, in life, all we are is a collection of moments. And everything else is just the in-between that moves us from point A to point B in life. But typically, we remember moments. And that kind of informs who we are. And... If this season did nothing else but give us moments, it was very, very good at that. What was your favorite moment? Aside from the OG3, I think that's almost too easy. Yeah, the OG3 was really, really good. But my favorite moment, if I had to, I really, really enjoyed that road trip where Dame had like two makes the whole game. Kawhi yeah. went two for 11. They beat the Lakers. That Lakers win was, I mean, that when when Pascal crossed over Anthony Davis, or when Chris Boucher blocked Davis and James on the same possession. I mean, those two plays could have been two of my absolute favorite of the whole season. That Lakers win was so much fun. 
Yeah, also, I typically, like, I'm sure Kyle Kuzma is a fine guy, but I never liked his game. Like, his game is fine, but I just thought he had the classic, like, shine of Laker person yeah. that got so much attention. So, it was nice to see Pascal boogie on him, possession oh, after possession. Man, just, he I was think food. you had the stat up on Twitter, I think, that night. It was 7 of 7 for, like, or 9 of 9 for, like, 21 points against Kuzma yeah. with something ridiculous. And so, that was really fun to see because it was really... In the early part of the season, the Raptors were figuring everything out, but at that road trip it felt like they had morphed the defense into something truly terrifying because they realized the defense went a little bit deeper than they thought yeah. so they could be a little bit more aggressive with it. And and the pieces were more interchangeable than we thought yeah. as well. And that defense, I mean, game seven against Boston, there were stretches where the defense frightened me. I mean, like that defense in game seven, and to Boston's credit, I mean, they fought through. Their defense was also amazing, but... I don't know if I've ever seen a team play defense at that level as Toronto was playing for stretches. Yeah, especially once they controlled their closeouts because Boston really figured out the the pump fake and Side step dribble. drop dribble and yeah, and then you put the shot up and that was when it was tough. That little stretch when you're like, oh my god, the Raptors can't stop a thing, and it was just Boston missing, hitting a yeah. couple but missing, and it was like they're putting the pressure on. But if the re the release valve is as simple as a pump fake, the yeah. defense is failing. So once Kyle Lowry started having more of the closeouts, it's that great controlled chop step type of thing. It was yeah. it was really nice to see. The defense was one of the most important parts of the season, obviously, and and unique. I, I remember talking to Mike Prada, and he was saying that it reminded him of like a 1992 Sonics team. And just that he had never seen anybody play like that before. And it, it was very unique the way they squeezed to the middle and just released to the corners with their long athletes to contest threes and how they position typically the shooters that they like with open shots. I thought it was one of the most ingenious defensive schemes I've ever seen. Yeah, people give Nurse a lot of, I mean, he's supposed to be an offensive mind, right? But his his defensive innovations, I think, have been much more impactful, at least um, currently, I mean, his, his offensive innovations happened before he was the head coach of the Raptors. But uh, how about the uh, speaking about that defense? How about that Utah game, the last one of the season, when Toronto just put the hurt on the Jazz? Uh, the last one of the pre-Corona season. That was so much fun to watch. One of my favorite games of the year too. Yeah, and then afterwards, everybody freaking out because there was that video of Serge kissing the ball, of course, like he does before the free throw after Rudy attempts it. And you see OG and Serge just kind of like wrestling with Rudy all night. But they, man, they played fantastic defense. That might have been, honestly, the precursor to why we saw Nurse so easily switch OG onto Bam in that seeding game against the Heat. And then that game probably made him feel like, okay, we can go small against Tice as well. And being able to trust OG defensively, it seemed like we were headed there. But those types of performances, I think they loom large in the mind of the coach. So that game, I think, had, was a precursor to way more success for the Raptors in what it enabled them to do defensively. And obviously, yeah. OG Ananobi, like, it paid off big because he is one of the most trustworthy defenders, I think, in the whole NBA. He's immaculate. He came out as a, as a defensive star this year. I mean, there were always little little things like 
you know, you fall asleep here and there or get caught on screens. Just, you know, young guys do that. But this year he just, I mean, his defense from possession to possession, from game to game, from month to month was pretty well identical and at just such an unbelievably high level. Yeah, my favorite thing about his defense, I would say, is that he's able to, he doesn't surrender anything, but he's still a dangerous defensive playmaker. And that is one of the most rare aspects of that side of the floor in the league. A lot of defensive playmakers are either really rangy shot blockers who typically aren't that good, actually, because they give up so much on the action behind them. Like, they come over really, really hard. It's very rare for a player to be that good. Yeah. Hassan Whiteside? Ex- yeah, for example. And, like, even Bismack, you know, Bismack yeah. used to be that kind of guy. Like, that that help side would be furious, and it would yeah. make highlights and all that kind of stuff. And then guys like Steph Curry and James Harden, they would get a lot of steals. Steal they, leaders, steal, yeah. they steal the point-to-wing pass the same way that OG does except they get burned on it. OG, yeah. maybe three, four times this year, that's it. But think about how many times he stole that. And just watching him guard Kemba on those switches, the craziest thing is that Kemba is rapid, like one of the most impressive quick-twitch athletes in the league. Yeah. And you can see, not only can he not blow by OG, but OG is hunting his dribble actively. Like Kemba has to yes. protect his dribble. That that's insane to me. I've it's very rare to see a defender with that type of acumen. Yeah, the, it's a good point. The, the the solidity mixed with the spectacular. You don't see a lot of that. Um, so did this season? I mean, I I'm kind of taking over the question asking role. I'm sorry, but did this season change <laughs> how you observe the future of OG? Like, is OG different to you now than he was in September of last year? Um, marginally. Not, not a whole bunch, because defensively, I think I was expecting this. Oh, we all knew this was coming. Yeah, I was expecting yeah. this, and it was nice to see it come a little bit early. I had that tweet, I don't know, a couple of days ago or yesterday, about him probably jumping the line in all defense next year. Because typically you have to be all defense for a couple years before you get on. That's just Absolutely. the way. And everybody, and there's a lot of players who hang around on all defense after they're way past. Pat Patrick Rex. Beverly, for example. Hey, look at that. Um, how serendipitous. <laughs> but if we're talking about offensively, there was some pop off the dribble that I think was really nice to see. He is not capable of taking wings or guards off the dribble. But I would say, you know, I wrote that huge piece um, yeah. prior to the to the bubble about his off the dribble game and I would say confidently that he actually he can take most big men off the dribble that's a pretty big development especially if they're going to play OG at the five in the future even in spot minutes that's a huge development and we think back to that huge three he hit in double overtime where you see him set the screen and pop and then hit a three against the contesting Tice those types of plays are small, but they're also huge in what they indicate about his mindset and his skill set. So not only is he a 39% shooter in the way that, hey, the man comes out during the regular season, he's going to hit 39% from the floor, but he's also a 39% shooter in the fact that it carries over. He's a shooter in the playoffs. He's a shooter under pressure. He can be a release valve. That's a huge development. So even though he's not going to be crazy off the dribble ever, I don't think, that development of being able to take bigs off the dribble 
and also being able to shoot as a release valve or, or a pressure release, I think is two of the biggest things that happened this year. So we did an off-season podcast. I think it was last year where we talked about OG. And I think I we were talking about different future, futures for him. And I'm pretty sure I was talking about how I saw him uh, improving his big skills were some of the most important things, his, his post-up game on guards. Um, cool that that ended up happening, happening for one thing. But I actually think that his big skills are at an extent that now I think those sort of being able to beat a rotating defense, uh, adding a little bit of a mid-range game, which we saw just more consistent, I think that's the area now uh, where, where the more improvement could help. I agree with you. Um, I think it's for you and I talking about his future as marginal uh, changes is probably just because, I mean, people who are attached to the team and we see everything happen in real time and we change our expectations, like you said, every day. So, you know, saying a marginal improvement is just because we've watched him all this time. And uh, yeah, he's really, OG's impressed the hell out of me and his future is bright. Yeah, and we can, it was super nice to see his ability to take care of guards and even wings on occasion in the post. Super nice. Yeah. The Raptors even ran some flex action for him this year, usually in the first quarter of games. I always liked that. It was a good way to get him involved as far as attacking a moving defense. When he takes his jumper, he's controlled. When he gets to put like three or four dribbles down and pull up, he's controlled. It's going to be really tough for him the way he operates on the court to get into the teeth of the defense and maintain control to whether he's going to pull up all of a sudden against a drop or if he's going to try and scoot around a guy who's pressing up on him and just his ability to change directions at that point. I'm, I'm yeah. excited to see if that comes because that will be definitely the most difficult aspect of his, of his changes that are coming in his career. But as far as offensively, did anything surprise you? I know you predicted the going in the post, taking care of guards. But were you surprised by anything that OG did offensively? So I think the footwork, I mean, it's always been sort of counterintuitive. He is, he does almost the opposite footwork of what you'd expect it at any moment. But it working surprised me. I mean, I saw that maybe as a weakness at times, but it ended up being like a Manu Ginobili strength where he just does what defenders don't expect. Like he spins backwards, he euro steps like into the same direction, he jumps off the wrong foot, and and somehow it it works right. He's just so strong, and the strength helps a lot. But uh, I think the footwork is somewhere I would have pointed to as a weakness, and ended up becoming something of a strength. Still needs a lot of tightening his footwork, but um, but the the framework is there in a way that I wouldn't have have told you last year uh, was true. I think that surprised me the most. Also, the I shooting think... being, sorry, yeah, just, also the shooting being a thing. Like I know he shot the same percentage as he did in his rookie year, but the jump shot is just much more repeatable, faster. I would have, you know, is the shooting a real thing? Second guess, wait for it to stabilize. But now we can confidently say, yeah, he's a shooter. Yeah, and against uh, more rapid closeouts as well. And yeah. as you said, that that's an astute point. Is that somehow he worked his always clunky looking footwork into an advantage which speaks to a quality guys who are able to create advantages just because it's them are always special players so i'm excited to see him progress but let's talk yeah. front court then pascal 
probably spend the most time on Serge Ibaka, Marcus Saul. Is there a guy you want to start with first? Sure. Let, let's do Pascal. I mean, we're burying the lead here. Pascal's probably the biggest story for the Raptors right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's, I don't think either of us would be guilty of overreacting, but Pascal just never got his game in the bubble. I mean, there's lots of possible reasons, but I don't blame the guy as much as other people seem to. Like, just this whole season was so bizarre, so weird, that for guys not to find their footing afterwards, it almost seems difficult to criticize. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, well, it it makes a lot of sense, especially... Because you and I, I'm pretty sure it's very easy to default. And I typically don't even blame anybody if I hear them default to the, they're millionaires, they do this kind of stuff, they're awarded very handsomely. I don't think that way, but I'm not going to stop anybody else from thinking that way. But I know you and I, we don't default to that. So as soon as you remove the layer of the, look how much money they make, I think you start to look at the way that these guys interact with media fans and the transgressions that come with being in the spotlight all the time is on the court especially especially if you're failing there i think it's really easy to empathize with them and to try hard not to pass judgment but to only look objectively at what's on the court and try and have a mindful thoughtful look at how it affects off the court as well and vice versa yeah that's what i think so it's i definitely understand why you and i think that way and off the court, I mean, the Raptors talked about just not having fun for the first few games of that Boston series. And the OG shot gave most of the team their fun back. They seemed to enjoy themselves a lot more, Kyle especially. Pascal never found the fun in the bubble. And, I mean, it just, it's fair. I mean, it's such a weird thing. Uh, and his game is predicated on fun. I mean, Spicy P, right? The spin move, leaking out in transition, his game is just about using that sort of joy and energy to fuel unexpected runs. He's very much a, um, a a player of runs. You know, Kawhi could have been a guy to get 30, you didn't even notice it. Whereas Pascal's a guy who could score 18, and it seemed like he could have scored 40, right? Like, he's almost the opposite in that sense. And, and for a guy who never found his fun, never found his footing, it makes some sense that he struggled, particularly when the backlash got as intense as it did. I mean, um, I know Nick Nurse sort of got mad at me for a question I asked where I wasn't even criticizing him at all. I just I just asked a question about Pascal and and Nick might have taken it the wrong way or he was just tired of talking about Pascal, which I understand. But it the, the storm about his game got to such an extent that it almost, I think, became a self-fulfilling prophecy where how could a guy turn it around in game seven against a team like Boston. It just, I don't see how, when it got as deep into the hole as it did for him, how he could have pulled it out. And so that also means that coming in next year, I why would there be carryover, right? Like, give it time, give him headspace, give him practice, and, and he should be the Pascal we remembered, right? Yeah, there's this super archaic idea in fandom and in some sects of the media that if you bludgeon a guy with criticism repeatedly he need rise up to the occasion and that sets the stage for whatever is about to happen and those who are soft fail and those who are winners rise above it's idiotic it's really stupid and you can even see it with yeah 
and you can see like even in people that we know on Twitter, like openly criticizing and then people, if he has something good happen, everyone's like, oh, it worked. Like in, instead of like, for example, when you and I talked at the start of the year and you were talking about the two for one situation and you tell Fred Van Vliet, oh, hey, Pascal's shooting really well in this one spot. And then it just happens the next game that there's a pitch play and Pascal hits that shot. There, There's more collinearity there, if any at all, than there is to somebody on social media shit talking and then saying, oh, see, now this is what it's all about. There's still the remnants of that rooted everywhere in fandom and stuff like that, which is, I mean, never good. But anyway, I, I digress on that part. Pascal, the the steps he took this year, and what impressed me most in the bubble is that while, yes, it is disappointing that his elite touch left him, that is really disappointing, especially considering that the Raptors tried to, even though he didn't have his rhythm, they thought we can rely on his touch around the rim, just try and get him yeah. close, let him finish those little bankers, those little hush, hook shots, push shots. That didn't happen either. But at least for a guy who couldn't get anything going offensively, I thought his defense, he was a top five defender in the playoffs. He was immaculate to me. Him and OG both. Oh, the, that's the thing. I mean, for as, as bad as he was offensively, you know, he needed to be on the floor. I mean, his, his defense, he is the opposite of DeMar, right? Where DeMar, God love him, when he struggled offensively, it just there wasn't a ton of reason to play him. Whereas Pascal, when his touch is gone and when he's not creating much separation, now the turnovers actually changed that in Game 7. But in general, when the touch is gone, he's not creating much separation. You still have to have him on the floor just because he gives so much with the rebounding, the closeouts. I mean, he led the league in contesting three-point shots in the regular season, and that went up a huge amount in the playoffs. He, he contested way more three-point shots in the playoffs. Like, that guy is just a special, special defender. Uh, I think OG may sort of have him in the regular season just because of the solidity, and Pascal took a step back from game to game. But in the playoffs, to me, Pascal was just... It's indescribable how incredible he could be from possession to possession. Yeah, Pascal, the how fast he recovers, how fast he shoots out from basket to wing to above oh, the man. break is it's it's super rapid and i agree og i think will have the all defense position next year if provided yes. that the raptors are good and get one but pascal when it's time to turn it up defensively the coverage that he has on the court his ability to come over for a help side weak side contest yeah. and then already sprint out to the opposite corner and then and that, chase back like it's it's pretty impressive and that stuff. skill that very skill, which Kyle also has, by the way, which is just insane. But, I mean, you talk about designing systems around players' unique superpowers, right? So the Houston Rockets around James Harden, the offense, the, or the defense too. The Milwaukee Bucks offense around Giannis. I mean, the Toronto Raptors, the way you described their defense earlier in the pod, where they sink to the middle, you know, let the corners let, get a little open and squeeze out to them and trust their athletes. You don't do that without Pascal. You cannot design that system without a guy like Pascal in the fold. So, I mean, he is definitive for this team on both ends of the floor. And uh, and that remained true in the playoffs as well. Yeah, especially it's it reminds me of the Heat, how they really maximized 
LeBron's athleticism, Bosch's athleticism, Wade's athleticism. And for the first time in a long time, it wasn't about having a big plotting big in the middle. It was about having these guys who could cover the court. And there exactly. was this aspect of watching that Heat team defensively where it's always in motion. And a yeah. defense in motion is a defense that can be attacked. But the Raptors and the Heat of that year, when they're in motion, that's when they look scariest. When they're set, that's when they look like the the easiest to to attack. It's a that's it's exactly a strange right. thing. It's a it's a phenomenon in sport. But Pascal Siakam, incredible defense, a slowing offense. Do you think that this is a precursor to anything, or do you think this is a bubble-related, four months off from basketball-related thing? Do you expect him to be, and he was a playoff performer in the 2018-19 playoffs, I think. He just had a hell of a run of incredible defenders to go against. Do you think that this is the precursor to more things, or do you think he's able to turn it around? No, I don't think it's a precursor. I think... Next season, we will see a better Pascal than we have ever seen. And I mean, look, so historically, guys who are for the first ever time, first options in the playoffs, they struggle. That's just reality. Now, Pascal struggled a little bit more than historically first options do for the first time in the playoffs. But that doesn't mean it was an abnormal path. And I think there are elements of his game that he sort of... um, relied on not improving. So so his ability to create separation with the second line of the defense has always been mediocre, and he's always trusted his touch to just be able to beat them. And, and by and large, that touch has been unbelievable. So, you know, he can drive past the first line and then make a little spin around the second rather than really vaulting over them. And the contest is great, but his those little hooking bank shots, he still makes them. So who cares? And then when his touch left him in the playoffs and he started missing that really showed that no he does need to be able to create separation so that means you know working on I mean he'll be doing a lot of leg weights in in the offseason he'll be working on his handle a ton right like that pull-up jump shot he's going to be working on the the lower half of his body he's got his wrist pretty solid now for his jump shot like he sees where the weaknesses are and that's a guy who I mean that's a guy who works like an absolute animal. I mean, you hear stories about Jimmy Butler, Kawhi, I mean, Pascal works. And I just, I see no reason why his struggles should carry on going forward. I'm curious. I talked about this with Robel yesterday, but as far as Pascal and the pull-up jumper, I think mostly from beyond three-point line, but the biggest development, I think, as far as shot making that he can make, and this is something Robel agreed with, I thought just because of, the way that his jumper is formed, you know, his his base, the hitch he has, and his touch, I thought that the most important step offensively as far as shot making was for him to have a, you know, let's say a 5 to 14 foot runner or floater because I think that would complement well a pick and roll attack and yeah. I think that it would allow him to do it a lot faster. And I think it complements his game better than a, like a mid-range pull-up does. What do you think about that? No, I totally agree. I mean, he ends up taking sort of 10-foot push shots anyway out of the post all the time. And I mean, that's not a bad thing. Like, for him, shot selection, I think, is less important because because of that God-level touch. Um, But so, for example, when he often drives past a guy 
if he doesn't have that first open look, he will pivot to put his back on the guy, couple fakes, and then end up taking that turnaround hook shot you know, where, where his legs have contact and where it's much harder to get his strength under him. And it's just much easier on the first drive to just transition to the push shot in the first place. So I completely agree. I think making those sort of quicker looks will help him a lot as well. Um, and, and so a lot of Celtics writers were really keying in on the fact that Siakam really only has a couple different moves. And they're, they're all slow. They're all, they all involve a lot of setting up. And adding in that instant reaction sort of shot, I think, would certainly create a lot for him as well. Okay, so Serge Ibaka, Marcus Saul, obviously, I would say Serge with a better offensive season, Mark with a significantly stronger defensive season. What do you appreciate about both of their games? So I think I appreciate most is the professionalism. I mean, these are both... Um, guys who have just had such storied careers. I mean, Marcus Gasol, almost surely a Hall of Famer because of his international career. Um, Serge Ibaka, probably below, the, I mean, certainly below that line, but also just a really unreal season or career. And the fact that, that Toronto asked them to sort of play mid-20 minutes a game, asked them to start here and there to sacrifice shots, touches, and they're both happy to do that. I mean, they both have contracts upcoming. And they both are happy to sacrifice minutes and shots. Let's be real. They lost millions of dollars, right? Like, if Mark were to have gone to a team where he got 15 shots a game, he's making probably $6 million a year, just spitballing, $6 million a year more this upcoming contract than he would have otherwise. And he seemed happy to sacrifice to play with the Raptors. The same with Serge. I mean, he's coming off the bench. Like, how, how often do you see a guy like that in his 30s coming off the bench? It's just, for them to do that, to put up no stink, to remain consummate teammates, to remain consummate veterans, players, to give everything they have when they're there, cannot be overstated, because it's rare. That doesn't happen often. Who are you more scared of losing? Because on the one hand, Serge Ibaka considering that the Raptors use the pick and roll as a playmaking play instead of a scoring play for their guards, just because of how Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry operate. If Serge Ibaka leaves, that's a lot of offense that leaves with him. And that's a lot of threat of offense. But also if Marcus all leaves, the corner offense basically goes out the window as well. How do you feel about maybe one of, or both of them leaving Toronto in the future? Yeah, I, I think for the Toronto to grow in the future, I think they probably both have to leave. I mean, yes, Serge Ibaka does offer a huge amount of offensive threat. And when he shoots 50% from three, I mean, yeah, that, that helps a lot. But I, I don't think the Serge Ibaka, uh, you know, pick and pop being the team's most consistent half-court offense, that's probably not good in the long run. That's not what you want. Um and so it's a failsafe. It's a really good failsafe that also didn't get them past the Celtics. Um, Marc Gasol's defense, I mean, as good as he is still, he's definitely lost a step. There are ways that teams can exploit him, which wasn't true two or three years ago. And defensively, I mean, or offensively, you saw all season, but particularly in the playoffs, Gasol uh, just doesn't have what he used to have as well. So... I mean, they both give a lot. They're both still very positive players, and I love them both. But I don't think at the price they'll command, 
that they will enable Toronto to be championship teams. Uh, if you get one of them on the mid-level exception, yes, absolutely. Bring either back for sure. But I don't think at the $10, $20 million range, which, you know, which Serge might get, I don't think Toronto should pay that if they want to win a championship in the next year or two. If you take, let's say, both leave, where do you think the offense flows to? Because obviously this season, they're probably not going to make a big signing. Where do you, because if they both go, is Chris Boucher a premier rim runner now? Is is Paul Watson getting like pick and roll possessions on occasion? Like, what do you see going forward if the, if that is the case? No, there's a hole for sure, and I also don't think Chris Boucher is coming back. I mean, he's going to get paid by wow. someone. Wow. Um, and I just Toronto's trying to preserve that cap space and giving you know nine a year to Chris Boucher, which he could get. I don't think is is how Toronto wants to spend the money. But so I think that you know I don't think their big rotation will carry over. And so bigs are fairly still, there's an opportunity cost. You can find solid contributing bigs at a, at a middling cost. So Harry Giles is an example I've seen on Twitter. I, I, if Toronto could get him, that's a huge win. Um, otherwise, I mean, they'll find someone out of the bargain bin, right? And, and, and they'll contribute fine. But you asked about the offense. I think Pascal will pick up a bigger share. I mean, his usage was actually only in the high 20s for most of the year. And that could be pushed pushed up a tiny bit. Uh, he will improve. Uh, Fred Van Vliet's a guy who I think uh, will become more efficient with the usage he does get. And Toronto always finds a way to do it by committee, right? So, so Kyle, in what could be his last year, will be continue to be just a god-tier player. Uh, Matt Thomas will, will, I think, have a bigger role. Terrence Davis will have a bigger role. And Toronto will make do. They're, they're a team who just, they fit the offensive cohesion around whoever's in the fold, and they will design it to work no matter who they have. So I guess we can expect possibly a more guard-oriented, more so than it already is, be, well, because it is a guard-oriented offense, but a lot of the plays they run are to get Gasol to the middle of the floor so that he can pass to the corner or to get Ibaka popping or there's a lot of service to the big men in the offense, I think. But yeah. as far as next year, I think could be more guard-oriented. It's crazy that you say Boucher could get nine when you think that, like, Rashawn Holmes is on 4.8. Like, okay, and Rashawn Holmes is, is a killer. That's Rashawn a Holmes point. is a killer. I want Rashawn Holmes on the Raptors, man. Rashawn I love Holmes this game. <laughs> is so unbelievably good. People have no idea. He is one of the best floaters in the league, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and defensively, I mean, amazing. But... Yes, okay, that's a good point. And nine, particularly given the, the economic realities of the NBA, nine is maybe crazy, but I mean, people pay for pop, right? For for that perceived, you know, that five plays a year. What do you do at your best? People pay for that. And at his best, Chris Boucher did some crazy things. So, I mean, can't you see a team like the Knicks or the Hawks or the Bulls just, you know, seeing what Boucher did, saying, you know, maybe that's a guy given... His per 36 is crazy. Let's let's give him time, you know? Let's give him 25 minutes a game, see what happens. And I could see them just outbidding Toronto. If it's per 36 that people like about Chris Boucher, then it's almost beyond a certainty that he will be on the Bucks. I presume. Slotted next to Chris <laughs> Middleton, Giannis's per 36 numbers. But as far as, like, the Knicks or the Hawks or something like that, I mean, hell yeah. I Seeing so much of Chris as a person, 
I think he's he's cool as hell. So if he gets the bag somewhere, good for him. He's deserving of it. But maybe let's swing it into the guards. Fred Van Vliet, our most contentious player between you and I. The, the biggest disparity in thought comes with him. And then we're obviously very harmonious with Kyle Lowry. Let's talk Kyle first, and then we'll we'll finish with like Norman Fred. I mean, Kyle's proved himself again and again. This is a surefire Hall of Famer. This is one of the five or ten most important players of the last decade. I mean, this is this is just the most hidden, the most buried superstar in the league. And Kyle, what what's left to say? Like this guy is just so goddamn good at everything he wins every second every inch um in a way that nobody maybe jimmy butler does uh he's well i mean what can you add what what's that we've said it all over the years right right so i guess i'll ask you was it surprising to you and it definitely doesn't have to be surprising but it was the rapidness the quickness with which he was able to allow Fred to suddenly Fred's primary initiator for a majority of the year. I would say that that's how I perceived the offense. Fred ran a lot of the plays and I don't even think that was reflected in his usage percentage either. I think that a lot of the plays spent time in his hands and he didn't even end up finishing or having an assist, anything like that. He, He had a lot of the ball and Kyle being able to transition in the heat of a very competitive series against the Celtics to being like, okay, I'm actually the guy. And being able to turn it on in that pressure cooker was maybe the most impressive. And a little bit less impressive, but still impressive, was his ability to just slide into that combo role, relocating off ball, helping in transition every once in a while, but still in service to Fred. His whole game really surprised me. But did it surprise you how quickly he turned it on? No, not, not at all. I mean, look, this is a guy who over the past two or three years, his he was one of the best jump shooters in the league, and he just lost that. And now he is, like, he was tied with Dame and Steph for a couple of years as, like, the best pull-up shooter in the league. And then that, that left. Then he became a mid-30s pull-up shooter rather than low-40s. And he replaced that by becoming one of the best passers in the league. I mean, he's just always found a way to maximize what he has to give. Um, And so, no, it doesn't surprise me at all that he was able to adapt in the heat of the series. That's just what Kyle does, right? Like, look at how he changed his game from DeMar to Kawhi to Pascal. And his ability to do that over three seasons really just says it all. I think that's the best way to describe Kyle is that that changeability without suffering any loss really speaks to his his genius on court and his ability to be malleable with his talents. Just another point to the adaptability. He was one of the best point of attack defenders in his first few years in Toronto. He lost a little of that lateral mobility and oh, he becomes the best rim protector of a guard in the league. Like who can do that? Who can just change what he's best at? To suit his body. That's crazy. Anyway, sorry, you were saying. Yeah, and the point you bring up about him being, you know, a pull-up dribble three-point shooter. That started in Houston. He was one of the first to do it, and that carried over to the Raptors. And there was playmaking pop to his game, but never a crazy amount. It was mostly every once in a while with the, in the pick-and-roll with, like, Amir or JV, and then there would yeah. be the little two-man game with DeMar. 
fast forward, suddenly you get with Kawhi, if Kawhi's taking a break on offense, Lowry is operating some sort of hellish wizardry against the opposing defense. And you even see it gnashing the pick and roll, his yeah. ability to manipulate the help side big man. Just always drawing attention while giving it elsewhere is it's immaculate. He's he's one of the, my favorite players to watch ever. He's he is a genius on the court. But I guess Fred, thoughts on Fred? Well, so just real quick, I wanted to ask. So he has one more year left on his deal. Kyle does. Do you see him finishing out that contract? Do you see him resigning a new one in Toronto? I hope so. And I hope he knows he probably stands the best chance at getting into the Hall of Fame if he stays in Toronto and retires there just because of the optics so that people always remember that part of his career. Some people, the end of their career kind of goes to the wayside, jumping around teams, and it fizzles out a little bit. And so that's just for the optics. I mean, Kyle doesn't have to do that. He can do whatever the hell he wants, honestly. And he does. And he's great at everything. I'm just saying, if he's going to try and go to a contender, he's a winner. If he goes to a winner, that helps a lot, obviously. But it's hard to win a chip. And I think I would, I mean, I wouldn't be too angry at watching Kyle Lowry. I mean, I'd love to watch Kyle Lowry hang out on the Raptors and do his thing, even if he is paid well. I mean, get paid well, dude. You deserve it. I hope he finishes it out. I I think he will finish out the contract. I don't know if the uh, if the Raptors resign him, if he'll want to go elsewhere. I mean, that dude is not very forthcoming about his intentions. So yeah, he'd have to give up a lot of money to stay in Toronto. And and who knows? Maybe you know, maybe he wants to do that. But who knows? Yeah, and I they shouldn't trade him. By the way, I I don't like that. Even if there is a perceived you know advantage, I don't think that's good. But Fred VanVleet. The uh, the pull-up jumper, more real in the postseason than it yep. was in the regular season. Yep. I think that is a huge development that we saw this year. Totally. Like major. Big time, big time. And more of a, we have to see more of a realization from him in understanding what his strengths are. Because it is so easy to identify in-game. Even casual fans can recognize when Fred has it going and there's clearly a version of him that works off ball and pushes in the right moments in transition and really finds opportunities for himself. And the one that's probing, but without really causing any panic to the defense resetting and just hanging onto the ball for, you know, 13, 12 seconds of possession. He needs to figure out which of those, you know, he's going to service and ideally the former, right. But overall, and including his defense, which you were probably the first person to really pick up on and really write a huge piece about. Thanks, I'm not buddy. sure. If, I'm not sure if Blake has something. Blake has something for everything, so I'm not sure. But I'm pretty sure you're the guy. And his his defensive chops are near all NBA level. And to mix with an offense that is a little disappointing in contrast with Kyle Lowry, but is still very impressive when you compare it to the rest of the point guards in the league. I glowing a a big gold star for Fred, even though everybody's mad at him and thinks that he commandeered the last possession, even though they don't know that the hammer play got blown up, whatever. Like, I I don't even blame him for that shot, but a gold star for him this year from me. So I wrote about, I did a thing about um, the, the Kyle Pascal two man game during the year. And, uh, and part of it that often led to the hammer in the corner for Fred or, or for Norm. 
And uh, it was run a couple times against Boston. And every time in the regular season that Toronto ran that, Boston blew it up. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me they blew up the hammer for Norm with the season on the line. But that's, you know, not about Fred at all. So I agree. I mean, you and I have disagreed about Fred, but I think there's a lot of common ground. Um, yeah, the defense, I appreciate you saying, I, man, I am proud of, of picking up on that because everyone and their mother knows how good Fred is on defense now. But I think the thing that's maybe most interesting or at least most questionable for us going forward is where do you think those on-ball chops? Did you see improvement over the year? And do you see room for improvement going forward? Okay, so as a scorer, yes. I think that his playmaking numbers are super inflated. I That's my perception of it. I don't think he makes... I think he makes simple playmaking plays when advent when advantages are there and that's already a huge step that means that he can have the ball but i think that he misses a lot and i think that by virtue of his short arms short stature a lot of angles aren't there to him that regularly would be for taller guards and kyle can do it because kyle has that prayer natural sense but fred doesn't really so the playmaking i think was definitely inflated by him running through so many sets for the Raptors and pushing yeah, so yeah. much in transition. But he doesn't no, have the value added assists, but he does has have the value sustained assists. Yeah, that's a that's a really great way of putting it. But as far anyway, as yeah, keep going. I, I've said this to you before, but I think that his his jumper is built similarly to Steph Curry's. It's yeah. it's very similar to me. So I think that his mid range game, if he goes in there, could pop off. If the Raptors are going to do away, as you said, or as you suggested they might, or what might happen with Serge and Marcus All, just having a guy to come in and screen and having Fred able to go to work when he snakes a pick and roll instead of just resetting. If he can use the middle of the four as an avenue for jumpers, I think that would be great for his career. And I think that would be good for the Raptors offense as far as this year. As I said at the top, that's that pull-up three, that's a big deal. And the finishing obviously has to get better, but if he adds other aspects of his game, it will by proxy of those things because you, he won't be covered as hard at the rim. So do you see him as, as the point guard of the future? I know you didn't in the past. Pascal's rise as a tertiary ball handler helps. OG's, you know, that little extra pop of his dribble yeah. game helps. The thing is, I get stuck... A point guard of the future, I get stuck thinking Kyle Lowry heir apparent when that's not right. the case, right? So it's not, He's not Kyle. it's the it's not the heir to Kyle Lowry. It's just who's gonna run who's gonna be the Toronto Raptors point guard. And I think certainly in the market, he'll get what he's worth and he'd get it from other teams as well. Do I think yeah. that the Raptors with Fred Van Fleet at the very top of things are going to win championships? Perhaps not. Even if, you know, Giannis is in tow in the future, it's hard to win with slashers as your best guys. That's it, There is a seemingly a cap on that archetype and what it provides. Now, that could, you know, Giannis can break through the mold in Milwaukee, in another city, wherever. But as it currently stands, it's tough to win with a slasher guiding you. So you don't can, think a starting lineup of, say... I know talking about we've talked about Giannis a lot. It's almost it's unfair, but just this one. Do you think Fred Terrence OG Pascal Giannis? Do you think that 
that lineup is a championship lineup? Depends who they play. I don't think <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I think I think it's they could be a contender, but I don't think that's a, a slam dunk championship like a lot of people might think it is, because the thing is, and this Robella had a really great point about that, but the thing is when Pascal and Giannis are missing shots, it's this gross forcing of the order of nature, like just trying to slam through things. Whereas, for example, if Kawhi shoots five for fourteen. He got those in rhythm and it's just missing jump shots, but those jump shots will be there and he's a good jump shooter. And there's just that ability to return to something that guys like Giannis and Pascal presently don't have. So it, it really makes me question what type of player leads a championship team. And of course, there's a bunch of different ways to win a championship, but a lot more have this, you know, overlap of certain types of players, archetypes and if you have Giannis and Pascal, and it's not guaranteed that Pascal progresses as an on-ball, off-the-dribble guy, yeah. if Pascal is presently the same player, and if Fred is the guy who takes a little bit of a step, they would still be, that team would still be bereft of shot-making. I, I, do, I do actually think that. Which, to bring it back to Fred, I think is why what you, what you mentioned about Pascal is true of him also. I mean, him adding that mid-range jump shot against Boston made me really happy to see in the series. Um, for him to become, you know, a quicker decision maker in the mid-range, for him to add a little six, seven-foot floater, I know it's considered an inefficient shot, but for him to add those unassisted scoring chops in the middle of the floor, I think is probably the biggest element of improvement that I'm looking to see next year. Yeah, and I think he hit six or seven of them in the series, maybe a little bit less. But I'm, yes, I'm in the same boat as you. I am jazzed up anytime I see Fred pull up in the mid-range because I'm like, oh, hell yeah, that's the next step for him. Yep. But uh, do you think we, maybe a little bit on his defense? He, he was fantastic this year. His ability to chase off ball and, my God, in that Celtic series to dig in against Tatum, there were a lot of possessions in the last three games where he dug in against Tatum. And, my God, he was so impressive. I yeah, thought his he, defense was awesome. He is so unbelievably strong. I mean, you don't see it. Like, you see Kyle's strength manifested in almost every play he does, right? Like, Kyle is obviously strong. And Fred's strength is a little bit more subtle. It's, it's maybe more in his fingertips, more in his toes type of strength. But it's it it's just it is unbelievable where sometimes, you know, Tatum tried to back him down and Fred just swallowed up his legs. He like backpacked his legs. Tatum couldn't move him and was forced to this contested turnaround jump shot. Fred has unbelievable hands at stripping guys. I mean, he ate Kemba Walker's brains like he did to Steph in the finals. Like Fred's defensive chops as a point guard are pretty much unique. Now, not to say he's the best defensive point guard in the league, although, you know, he certainly has an argument, but Chris Paul and Marcus Smart would be up there. Um, but he's just unique. No one does what he does. Uh, not even Kyle does what he does, although Kyle does stuff Fred doesn't do. So, I mean, his defensive year was comparable to OG, was probably better than Pascal in the regular season. Um, and he's just, he is almost infallible there. He just... Not many guys can control the point of attack. He can. And on top of all the switching, the digging into wings, the generating of steals, he was, I think, second in deflections this year. He's a solid rebounder, good at blocking out bigs. I mean, 
He's so smart. He pre-switches. He he digs into the weak side. He tags rollers. He's just, God damn, that guy's a good defender, man. I think it's, and he's still incredibly underrated. If if not by me, if by a ton of other people, there was still a lot of discourse this year about Norm entering the starting lineup because people don't like the idea of having two small point guards and would attribute the Raptors' failures to that at the drop of a hat, even if there was no reason going into it there was no idea like there was no connection it was just like oh we give up too many rebounds whereas you could look at og was much better in the playoffs rebounding than he was much in the better. regular season if yeah. he brings that in the regular season a lot of those games maybe look different but they'd be like we didn't get enough rebounds and then they say well we got those two damn short point guards what are we gonna do and it's yeah it's always stuff like that it, it's it's a little bit confusing but they both play defense like they're six foot seven <laughs> Yeah, it's like if you say there's a tree stump that is still extremely heavy but has been removed from the ground and someone says, hey, can you like push that over? You know when people do the tire drill like in a workout, they lift the tire and push it over? Being guarded by one of them is like someone saying, okay, you can't use your hands or your upper body to push this thing over. You have to try and shove it out of the way just using isolated your one knee. Exactly. You're not you're not going to move them. Not not ever. Not <laughs> you're just going nowhere. So you have to take the jumper. And if you put the ball on the ground, you might get picked. And especially from Fred. Fred can pick the ball, man. Dude, those hands. Oof. Okay. Norm Powell and the let's say the rest of the the rest of the guys. Are you interested in discussing any of that as far as the look back on the season? Yeah. For sure. Okay. I mean, let's give some flowers to Norm's season, right? He His season was a huge step forward. And he didn't have the touches in the playoffs just because Nurse wrote his guys to his credit. And, and, you know, he had some moments in the playoffs that were reverting to bad habits. But I thought defensively he fought. I mean, he came up in game six and seven. So, you know, Norm took a huge step forward. Uh, Terrence Davis was a really awesome, promising rookie. Uh, we should... I mean, defensively, he was great. His shooting was really good. Just let's give him some love for that. And and Matt Thomas was a solid rookie, just such a good shooter. He was better defensively rebounding than expected. Um, Chris Boucher had his moments. Rondé was infuriating at times, fun as hell at times. Like, yeah, the Raptors bench deserves their love, man. We can't talk about the season without saying how fun these guys were. Well, yeah, of course. And so let's... Your favorite part of each person's game. So maybe Norm deserves a little bit more action as well. But so for Norm, the thing I enjoyed most was the transition and the pin downs. His ability over the past couple of years to change from being a guy who just really pops attacking the weak side to being a featured part of the offense and a guy who can capably make reads as far as if he's going to come over the top of it if he's going to attack downhill off of it, or if he's going to slide back because somebody's cheating under. His ability to create different types of shots out of the same play, a a huge boon for the Raptors' offense, and the efficiency with which he commanded those play types, very, very impressive this year. What did you think of Norm? Yeah, man, I I thought everyone sort of gave up on Norm being the X factor of blowing up, and then that's final of the year he does it. (laughs) I mean, Norm has a bright future, and, you know, he's he's limited. He's never going to be the superstar that we all wanted. I mean, defensively, he is solid at best. Um, and, and, you know, on ball, he is sometimes a little better than solid. 
and he's a really useful guy, and uh, and that hasn't always been true of him, and he's been really useful pretty much all year, and that's that's awesome. Yeah, I, I enjoyed his year a lot. Not to the point where I would have said put him in the starting lineup instead of Fred Van Vliet, but to the point where I thought, hell yeah, finally this guy is making good on all of his gifts because exactly. it had been developing for some time, percolating, as it were. You could see the jump shot was starting to come around. He was really consistent with it. And yeah. I wrote last year, I know a lot of people wrote about it this year because his numbers were better. But I, you know, if you were the first person to write about Fred's defense, I was definitely yeah, you got the first the person. I was the first person to write about Norm's footwork, like a year ahead. And it was just his, the counters he had in the lane, he, the patience he was uh, working with and that kind of stuff. And that mixing with the decision making, the pin down, it all kind of coalesced into this great big thing to where he had this fringe six-man-of-the-year status, but he also started too many games because the Raptors' injury situation was hellish and tough to navigate, but the Raptors had so many people come together and do it. Chris Boucher, the guy we disagreed on most at the start of the season, I, the ass that I am, even suggesting that Dewan Hernandez could be better <laughs> than Chris Boucher. That's something I said, Lewis. I said it on a podcast, and people can hear it anytime they want. How embarrassing. <laughs> hey, own what up did to you your mistakes. About, yeah, what do you think about Trey Boucher? Man, he was awesome. He just, I mean, his fight whenever he was given a chance was really solid. And look, I mean, I thought he had a role to play in the Boston series. He got that opportunity in the game. I thought he should get it, and he didn't do much with it, and that's fine, right? Like, that's fine. That was a series for the big guns. It's hard to ask a bench guy to punch above his weight in five minutes. Uh, that doesn't mean that, you know, it, it invalidates his season. Um, you know, he's a guy with his weaknesses. His three-point shooting is not efficient. Um, his handle can be loose. He, you know, he can be pushed around by the biggest bigs. But he he gives so much with the shot blocking, the energy, the shot con with the shot contest in the corners, the offensive rebounding. Like, he has a role in the league. And I, I don't think that was um, a certainty before the season. And he had moments in the year, man, that were just as high as anyone's moments. Like he can pop in a way that very few NBA guys can. Yeah, I think he fits, as you said, and you, you had that idea that Boucher could fit into the playoffs, into these series. And he does, ideally. Like he'll stretch the floor. He'll take the shots, which in the Raptors offense sometimes is very important. He'll, he'll hoist them up, and he'll rim run. Yeah. Those are the idealized versions of his game because he doesn't bring it all the time. And these games were slow. That was the difficult part, was that ideally he would bring that punch. And as you said, he didn't, and that's okay because advantages are supposed to play out over a long period of time. You can't just put somebody in and suddenly they've dominated the exactly. game. That's not how it works. But in the regular season... For a guy who fits so easily into transition basketball, I think if you're playing a fast game, you can pop Boucher in there and you just know. You know he's going to start making an impact because he runs the floor both ways with vigor. His length shows up in passing lanes vertically and horizontally. It's just he adds so much in that way. Suddenly he's really big on the court and he's everywhere. And the, the little reads that you have to make in the half court as far as a, a big on defense don't show up as much because he's just this radical, long-limbed guy flying down the floor on both ends. So 
he didn't really get to have that that playoff performance. It would have been nice to see, of course, but yeah, I was I was very happy with his year and very very impressed as far as as far as that goes. Terrence yeah. Davis. I mean, the outline's there, right? He's a rookie. He's an undrafted rookie. So he was, I think, people talking about him being in the playoff rotation, you know, him being the key to Toronto's sort of, um, I think he led the team in net rating for a while. Um, That was a little overstated. You know, defensively, he has really good highs, but, but lower lows. He lost his confidence in his jump shot in the bubble, and he readily admitted to that. But the outlines there of a guy who I think is going to be a really important rotation piece on the Raptors in the future, right? Like a vault-up guard, as Nurse loves to say, vault-up shooter, who can lock in on ball, who can rebound, who crashes the offensive glass, rise up and pound on people, um, little bit of chops in the pick and roll. I mean, the guy is there. He just needs to get his run. And so I think this year was as positive as it possibly could have been for the guy. Yeah, and I think he does allow for flexibility because not only is he able to present, at least if it's the regular season next year, that the Raptors, that's what you're looking forward to, of course, and succeeding there before the playoffs. If you're looking to a player who can definitely provide some punch and some value in the regular season, I think without a doubt, Terrence Davis will the playoffs next year. Who knows? As far as what he's able to bring to the table, he can do that. There's a floor to his game, and it's good. Yeah. But there's also a ceiling that adds some flexibility for the future, depending on what happens with his game and how he develops. So that's that's a really exciting piece to have on a team. I, I, I was impressed with his year. And you saw the excitement. I mean, I think it was the Warriors game. He had a, he had a couple dunks back-to-back that were just a, like, he could be the best dunker on the Raptors in-game, like the most fun at least. There's there's some bounce. The one on Marquise Chris was a really, really menacing throwdown. But I, I think Norm probably still has a little bit more pop, if I had to be honest. Yeah. yeah. I feel like Rondé could do a windmill, too. Rondé probably could throw down a nice dunk Dude, if he had a clear lane. His arms are like eight inches longer than his, his wingspan. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's a side note. Let's continue. Well, how about Rondé then? Rondé, yeah. the guy who had a huge role at the start of the season, like massive. He was in every game after that road trip, the West the West Coast road trip that we talked about earlier on the podcast. He really he found a lot of room in the dunker spot offensively. His chops defensively were palpable. He was, you know, by percentile was, I think, either 95th or 97th percentile as a one-on-one defender this year. And not so bad in rotation either. So, you know, a big year for him. What did you think of Rondé? Yeah, I think his season, I was I was impressed with the way Nick Nurse used him. I mean, when Toronto was thin, they plugged Rondé in. They used him as an on-ball guy just to limit the spacing thing. They put him in the dunker spot as a center sometimes. I mean, they did what they could to win with Rondé, and they won with Rondé. And then when, I mean, because of his defense, right? Because his defense is so amazing. They used him to guard centers, point guards. And then when the season mattered and, and it was the playoffs, and then he didn't get time, which is also fair. I mean, the shooting limitations would have crippled Toronto against Boston. Uh, and so I think Nick used him well. And I think to Rondé's credit, just like that was a tough year, man. To be asked to do what he was asked in the minutes that shifted from game to game, the role that shifted from quarter to quarter 
and to still thrive during it, to still be the energy guy, to still lock up on defense no matter who he's guarding. I mean, good on Rondé, and I, I don't think he'll he'll be back in Toronto, but he should get paid. Like, it was questionable wh- whether he would make a ton of money after last year, and I think he should get more in this upcoming year despite the crunch. Well, and God bless him because we had a pick and roll set below the nail because yeah. he was on the floor handling the ball. Where else are you going to get that? Nobody else who's going to have the pick and roll set below the nail is going to want to be handling the ball outside of Rondé Hollis Jefferson. And he actually ran it. It's not like he pulled up early. He ran the pick and roll under the nail, like below the free throw line. So you get to see something with Rondé that maybe you never see anywhere else. Exactly. And uh, the the final three, I think, mostly is, you know, Stanley Johnson and Malcolm Miller kind of morph into one thing. Not that they aren't different, but just in what they were able to contribute. They both had a couple moments. Stan, a way lower lows and way higher high, that game winner, obviously. Malcolm Miller Miller was a part of the 30-point comeback against the Mavericks. Every time he was on the court in a meaningful game, he was in a full press defense, which I think is kind of hilarious that he's <laughs> that's that's low key what he's he's most useful for. I thought he's his defense defender. this year. Yeah, I thought his defense was good this year. His jump shot still hasn't carried over, but I believe in it the same way I believed in Fred's jump shot to carry over too. Fred didn't shoot great in the G, when he was transitioning from G League to NBA at first. So I'm still waiting on Malcolm Stanley, I think is even if he's, his game is going well, is still just okay. And that's fine. It's good to just be okay. But what did you think about our, our end-of-bench duo there? Yeah, uh, almost the same. I mean, Malcolm might... I mean, I do think he's he has a role in the NBA beyond what he's shown. Maybe not in Toronto. At this point, I think it's unlikely it's in Toronto, which, is, which sucks because I love the guy and I want him to be in Toronto. I like talking to him. I, you know, I like watching him. I like rooting for him. But, uh, you know, that's life. That's just sort of how things go at that level in the NBA. Stanley, I'm less sure about. Um, but, man, fun as hell, like infuriating as hell and fun as hell and just does crazy shit sometimes. Yeah, Stan is very hard to gauge. I wrote the piece at the start of the year saying, I studied Stanley Johnson's game. This is where he'll have to improve. This is where he really struggles. And I was trying to write a glowing piece like, hey, maybe this guy can fit in with the Raptors. And still, even before he played a minute, I still came away from that piece saying, yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't understand. I don't understand how he got the contract. But I mean, hey, it's they couldn't have spent the money any better, really. Like, I don't think any signing. Yeah, I don't think any signing they could have made would have tipped the scales in this series against Boston or anything like that, for that matter. So, like, whatever, dude, right? Like, Stanley, get your money, enjoy your time in Toronto, hit a game winner. It's all very fun. Uh, Matt Thomas, Mr. 99%. So, I mean, to me, that appearance in Game 7 was, I think, maybe his most promising moment of the year because he chased an offensive rebound. He was part of a defensive stopper, too. Um, he hit a bucket and he spaced the floor. I mean, against a team like the Celtics, you can throw a guy in for five minutes. And if he doesn't fit, if there's any falter or quit, I mean, that guy can go minus 11 in five minutes real easy. And to his credit, Matt Thomas was a plus like five or six in those few minutes. And he just 
the 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 shape is there. Um, you know, the root is there with JJ Reddick, first of all. And just his ability to not be picked on in that in those few minutes was unbelievable. I don't know if I even expected it after watching him all year. And just the jump shot is is obviously a real thing. Um, his ability to take the side dribble, the one dribble forward, just to he has a little bit of passing chops. Matt Thomas is a guy who's going to play. I mean, he's probably going to play more next year than we expect. I mean, I could see him playing 50, 60 games next year. Um, and he's a guy I think Toronto will want to have in the fold going forward. Yeah, I agree. I think that the Raptors would be smart to keep Thomas in-house for yeah. a long time shooting, especially because, you know, the whole season, I think we saw people trying to pick on him. And he can be picked on, but it's not as easy as most players initially think. Yeah, it's, it's not There's, an easy two points, man. Like, maybe you're going to get something, but maybe you won't. And that's good enough for defense, right? Yeah, there's more compete there than you would think. So if he learns the scheme and learns how to move within it, like, with more proficiency, and he's able to, like, maybe some of those pin downs for Norm start transferring to Matt Thomas. Maybe he starts giving, you know, the two guys involved in that action defensively some heart attacks. Maybe he gets a little bit better at that drop down pass after receiving it up top. There's there's a bunch of little things like if Miami can make Duncan Robinson super useful and I know Robinson has a higher ceiling because of the height and the length and all that. But if you can find room for Duncan Robinson, I mean you can find room for Matt Thomas, maybe not to the same degree, but I I'd, I'd like them to keep him in house. I think it makes a lot of sense going forward for the Raptors. Yeah, you don't just find shooting like that. No, apparently like on the globe, anywhere, pretty much. You don't find shooting like that. Is there anyone else we're missing? I know, like, I know Dewan had, like, a three-pointer and, like, a block this season, but those yeah, are Paul, fine. Yeah, Paul Watson. Um, He's nice. Guy. I like O'Shea. Paul Watson. Yeah. yeah. I think Paul Watson and O'Shea are probably guys that in three or four years you'll see playing rotation minutes. I mean— O'Shea's defense came together, his rebounding, I mean, his his he fit in on offense in ways that wasn't clear he would from his G League performance. Paul Watson's even a step above that with just the handling chops, the shooting. He's also a, quite a good defender. Um, Toronto has a lot of guys that they can transition into minutes. I mean, a lot of wings, a lot of shooters. They They've got a deep stable of guys, man. So when I watch O'Shea Brissett, he reminds me a lot of Andre Roberson. Is that wrong, or do you see anything there too? No, like I he's mean, not as limited offensively, and he's not as good defensively, obviously. But yeah, Roberson is a preternatural defender. I mean, that guy at his peak was a world wrecking defender, um, and o O'Shea hasn't shown that sort of like plus plus defense where he just creates like the the OG type of stuff that you saw sometimes. Um, but I do see sort of some of the predatory stuff kicking in here and there. And yeah, he's got a body, man. His athleticism, he, he's really good. Yeah. Paul Watson might be, well, I would say Paul Watson, probably of Stanley Johnson, Malcolm Miller, Watson, and Brissett, that stable of guys. Watson, probably the most intriguing. Just yeah. because oh, yeah. his, his, the shake in his game is pretty palpable. You can see it. As soon as he steps on the court, there's a little bit of bounce there too. Long arms, a confident jumper. But as far as like his his shake is very, very strong. I like his game a lot. Yeah. All right. 
is there are we missing anybody else or is that is that everybody on the team man at this point if people are still listening i don't, I don't know if they i think that that's a lot we've covered a lot here brother uh, yeah an hour and a half podcast roughly it's uh something akin to joe rogan naturally <laughs> um okay let's let's get out of here then uh we talked about nick nurse you know in between all of this, I feel like he's gotten a shine. We we kind of honed in on his offensive and defensive schemes and sets. So, yeah, Lewis, would you like to plug anything before we get out of here? Yeah, so, I mean, before the plug, um, you know, so season overall is done, is crazy. Um, but fun, man. I had a fun season. I had a really fun season working with you, all the pods, all the writing. I mean, this was a blast. So thank you so much. Um, as for plugging, on that note of, of, of me and you together, uh, Samson and I, for you, listener, have a newsletter called Minute Basketball. You can find it on Substack. We write about the smallest things, the minute possible things um, that we can write about. And uh, probably with the Raptors done, we'll be transitioning more of our words there for the rest of the playoffs. So, so read us there. Agreed, Lewis. I uh, I will be transitioning more of my words to minute basketball, as as was written in the contract you and I laid out. Once the <laughs> Raptors are done, everything transitions to minute basketball or something like that. Lewis, thank you very much for coming on, listener. You're 53 and 19, losing in Game Seven, heartbreaking, but altogether very lovable Raptors. Season is over, and with this podcast most of the Raptors coverage. There'll be stuff talked about, of course, but there'll be league-wide stuff from this podcast going forward with little snippets of of Raptor stuff as well, perhaps some feature interviews talking about more Raptor-centric stuff. But thank you for sticking with me this year. I hope you enjoyed the weekly podcast as it is. And, Lewis, thank you very much for coming on, man. Always a pleasure, dude, and I mean that. All right. Well, listener, it's over for you. It's over for me. It's over for Lewis. Time to get out of here. So whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.